Welcome to the Consortium for Policy Research and Education's Research Minutes podcast. I'm Luke Sego, and today I'm joined by Nicole Simon and Maya Call to discuss their recent paper, Leading from the Middle, How Principles Rely on District Guidance and Organizational Conditions in Times of Crisis, also written with Megan Comstock. In this episode, we'll also hear from two New York City principals about their experiences throughout the pandemic. So Maya and Nicole, to get us going here, can you give us a little bit of background on your study and why you researched this? Yeah, so our paper was part of a bigger national study, which was led by John Sapovitz at Penn and included about 20 other school leadership scholars from across the U.S. And so the goal of that bigger study, as well as our paper, was really to get a pulse and understand how the early months of the COVID-19 pandemic were shaping school leaders' work and how they were responding to the crisis. So our paper, which I co-authored with my colleagues, Megan Comstock and Nicole Simon, specifically sought to understand how principals in large urban districts specifically responded to district guidance and the ways in which they leveraged their pre-existing school structures and conditions to lead change efforts. And so we draw on this frame from Jim Splan and his colleagues of principals as middle managers. And that framing basically suggests that principals are nested between their districts and their schools and can be pulled in multiple directions accordingly, either from their districts or their school communities. And so we were really interested in understanding how that framework could be useful in understanding how principals responded during the COVID-19 pandemic specifically. Um, And we saw in the public the huge range of of the nature of guidance districts were providing to schools. Some of it was much more helpful than others. And so we also saw that principals were really acting as first responders to their school communities. It was principals that teachers, students, and families were really looking to for answers. And so they really had to do the heavy lifting of implementing district mandates alongside their school staff. So we ultimately found that principals responded to guidance on a spectrum from abiding to district mandates, to challenging guidance, to actively subverting it, and then turning inwards to their school sites. And this is all in line with previous policy implementation scholarship, which suggests that principals can and do exert agency in policy implementation. Um, Interestingly, we also found that principals' responses on that spectrum were associated with the pre-existing school structures and conditions at their schools. And so one quick example is that principals who subverted guidance really depended on high levels of teacher human capital and collaborative decision-making structures to subvert guidance. In the beginning of the pandemic, principals in schools were really put in a bind. Schools had to shut down without notice overnight, really just a, a tough situation all around. I'm going to play two clips from two different principals you interviewed about their experiences when it came to the school closures and the communication they received from districts. Let's take a listen. There's no way they're closing schools. This is never going to happen. Like there were so many rumors swirling around, but like there was nothing specific, nothing named, um, nothing explicit, you know, no emails, nothing, no guidance, at least that was getting to principals. And so I was telling my staff, 100%, no way shutting down. Not at all, not a chance. And a thing that I never thought would happen was happening. And the thing about that time was that so much. And again, I, I say these things with humility and respect. Like I understand how hard it is to run a, a, the city, right? You're basically running the city, running an education system larger than any we know in the country. And principals weren't finding anything out ahead of time. And so everything was through Twitter, right? We'd learn when our families would know. We'd learn when all our kids would know. We would learn so that we never were prepared for anything. 
I know a lot of people speak about like adaptive challenges, but in the face of a global pandemic, there's actually a lot of technical challenges that matter. Um, and so like building the trust of my families who send their ch- kids to my school. Yeah, that's an adaptive challenge. Explaining to them when we're shutting down and when we'll be shut down until and details like that are, are very technical. And those decisions were being basically published on Twitter or news conferences before anything was ever shared with principals. Um, so it made that time pretty tough. Often what was happening at the beginning of the pandemic is I would hear, I would see a press conference with the mayor and the chancellor, hear something about policy for the first time, and then realize that because I'm learning about it alongside my family, kids, and teachers, I had to enact it the next day. So it was like leapfrogging my superintendent. (laughs) So there wasn't any like direct communication from my district until after the fact, and that happened significantly at the beginning of the pandemic. And even, even sometimes I would miss the press conference and just hear it on Twitter from Chalkbeat. I was like, oh, what am I doing now? Okay, this is what I'm doing now. Like, especially when it came to how we're going to come back to being in person. Like, you know, what are the mask mandates? What's the spacing? What's the ventilation? A lot of this stuff, the principals and I joked, hearing from Chancellor Chalkbeat first. So that was, um, that was very challenging because when you get an announcement, it is not accompanied by guidance or direction. So it was putting us into this boat of having to say to our communities, yes, you have heard that as have I. And, and then I would have to start saying things like guidance is forthcoming, which is what the city would say to us, and then realize that I couldn't actually delay that much. I would have to start creating guidance. Otherwise, I was going to have an overwhelming tidal wave of anxiety and stress from my teachers, families, and kids. And I couldn't have that because there was already a stressful situation to begin with. And if we got any more stress happening, then, then we would totally implode. So at some point, I definitely did turn the corner to start to be a lot more self-authoring. I'm like, okay, they've told me what they want the outcome to be. They haven't given me any guidance. I need to like, I need to actually start right scripting this path for myself. And hopefully with my experience and being able to read the tea leaves on the wall, the path that I create will be very close to whatever eventually comes out. And if it doesn't come, and if it is too different, then you know what? This is where I'm going to lean on my 25 years of experience and having tenure of a really pretty good, successful school. I'm going to say, yep, I'm just going to do it anyway, the way I want to do it. We can take it up later after the pandemic. So that's where I recognize that I had a lot of privilege in my position in the city as a principal when I was looking at my colleagues who were a lot newer or untenured and feeling much more uncertain. There wasn't a a capacity for them to be able to stick their necks out like that for the staff, which put them at a really difficult situation for their in-school communities, because we weren't getting the leadership that we needed at the time to be able to lead our community safely through this. So when you two hear this, what do you think of that? So I think the first and foremost frustration that principals expressed to us was a total lack of timely decision-making, forward-thinking, practicality. It has been so clear throughout this entire pandemic, which is still very much with us and is still affecting the daily work of teachers and and students and families and principals, (laughs) that so much of the decision-making around schools was being made by people who weren't in it who weren't going to be responsible 
for opening and closing and opening and closing and suddenly pivoting to teaching virtually and the the supposition that you can just overnight um, snap your fingers and learn how to use all the technology while your two-year-old is bopping about and you know your your co-teacher hasn't responded to anything that you've sent her in three weeks and you're very worried about your mother who has COVID, the the expectations put on principals and schools um, and the and the just like the lack of inclusive decision making um, and timely decision making. So yeah, I think we can all really remember how scary and really uncertain those early months of the pandemic in particular were. And what makes principals' roles really unique during that period is that they often were disconnected from the big decision-making happening at the district level regarding closing schools, yet their students, faculty, and families were depending on them for guidance. And so the challenges principals were facing really ran the gamut. It was everything from the big question of how do we shift teaching and learning to how do we ensure that we're providing school food, how do we procure devices, how do we get devices home to students, How do we train our faculty to shift to distance learning? And principals in schools more generally were really going above and beyond in addressing those questions. Principals also reported doing things like providing rent support to students who then faced insecure housing due to the financial burdens of the pandemic. And all of that was happening as districts were in many cases providing unclear and delayed guidance to schools on what to do. And teachers unions were still in the process of negotiating MOUs with their districts. And so principals were really operating with, at best, incomplete information, and at worst, restricting guidance that prevented them from getting their jobs done. And they had to make decisions about how they would act. We ultimately, again, find that principals ranged in how they responded from abiding to subverting um, that guidance. And all principals really leveraged the resources that they had cultivated over time at their school sites to respond. As schools reopened, they had to go from a traditional in-person model to full remote instruction, which was a whole new ballgame for everybody involved. And here are those same two principles describing the challenges that this transition process presented. So, like, I was not appreciating at all, like, how big it was going to be. Like, I was woefully underestimating. And so, for me, it was like, we're losing a month. All right, like, get folks in, get them centered. Um, And then, like, get them the basics that we need to know. So like, what what's our minimum? Like, like we wanna be checking in with families. We wanna have a way to do that. We wanna know where our kids are. And then we want like office hours, try and do like small group support, really try and leverage relationships. And so at the time we were way too novice to think about like synchronous versus asynchronous. Like we were all learning that at the time, right? And so one of the big decisions we made, which I think looking back was a good decision. So grade level teams have always been the backbone of the school. They know the kids best. They're closest to, you know, where the magic happens in the classroom. And so we've always really had a significant amount of decision-making and ownership at the grade level team. And so we took our professional development and made it all team-based. And so the reason why we did that is because different teams were in different places. Their grade levels had different needs. And so things that we could share out whole group, we started leveraging um, some of the research that was from community colleges, especially. So we started using that, you know, the power, you know, of kids still knowing their teacher, knowing each other and having time to bring themselves into the classroom. Like, yeah, we know that that's, we believe that normally. And so how do we transfer that? And what tools do we then get to transfer that into an online school? 
teams started innovating and then anything that they found that worked, we would share out whole staff, but really it became kind of 14 little research teams trying to figure stuff out that would work for kids. And so, you know, we still kept our, our cycles going to try and figure out like, Hey, we're going to try this. Let's see what happens, right? How are we going to measure it? How are we going to know? And so it was important for us though. I think the shift to go back was like really trusting our teams to try and uh, make decisions and to respond to what they were seeing from kids. And so the decision-making structure was really pretty decentralized. So much was put on teachers at the time, um, which I, I completely appreciate. And I think it was in the service of saying our kids are not logging in all day. They're not logging in all their classes. And how are we going to work this out? Because we're in a global pandemic. There was a big flurry when, him, when the mayor called that we're going to go into online learning. And the chancellor said, we're going to go to online learning. And you guys have a week to get all that stuff together. I was like, holy expletive, <laughs> what do I do now? And so I basically said, okay, also former history in my instructional history was being a technology coordinator and a, te a technology teacher. So I knew that in order to be able to pivot quickly to this kind of learning platform, I needed to take away any of the complexities that happened. So we needed simple machines and a simple platform. I knew that probably at that time, around 70% of my teachers were using Google Classroom. So I said, we're going to go to Google Classroom. We're going to farm out all the Chromebooks. At this point, I was like, I don't even know what to do with the Wi-Fi because that was, that was a hurdle that we encountered later. Because originally I was like, well, maybe the kids could use their, their phones as hotspots. And then we ran into the hurdle of they don't have data. Um, so I had been introduced to Zoom before, so I wasn't too unfamiliar with it. And so then I was able to turnkey that with my staff to create a Zoom environment for them. And all of this was before any centralized providing of anything. So I think I actually bought Zoom for everybody so they could have all the privileges for that. And I just bought it myself because I couldn't even figure out how to bill. <laughs> how do you even bill this? To Zoom? I'm just like, I'm just going to buy it for everyone. Everyone can just use it. And then we were able to go up and running with our, the live Zoom for that first couple of weeks. And I also shifted the program a lot to make time for teachers to reimagine what it was like to teach online. So first going off of that, Maya, can you talk about how these experiences that we just heard about fit into your research findings? Yeah, so as I mentioned, principals really ranged in how they responded, but we do know that across the spectrum of principal responses, they really depended on their pre-existing school structures and conditions. So in other words, the organizational resources which principals had cultivated in their schools over time supported their ability to respond during the crisis. And this is supported by a wide body of, of previous scholarship. In particular, though, our findings suggest that whether principals abided by, challenged, or subverted guidance, there were two key themes in the conditions that mattered most um, in their ability to respond to crisis. The first was having structures for teachers to collaborate and problem solve. So teachers meeting in content area teams or grade level teams really mattered uh, because it allowed them to share best practices, discuss student needs, and make sure that they were on the same page about what the new modes of instruction look like. Um, and the second one uh, is that strong relationships were key. And this is consistent with Breiken Schneider's seminal work on the role of relational quality in schools. We similarly found that without having an underlying culture of trust, principals were not able to work through the crisis effectively. And then the next challenge comes in the fall of that following year. Uh, now, most schools implement a hybrid model, half in school, half remote, the proportions of that might change. 
But here is just one of the principles describing that experience. How are we supposed to do in-person and remote learning at the same time? That was a huge juggle. It's like, how am I supposed to be teaching kids who are at home and kids who are in school? I just don't know how to do that. So that committee of folks, we talked around about it, the ups and downs, and then we came together to make the decision. The only way that this can work for teachers and kids and for all kids equitably is if we make all of our instruction remote. So even if the kids are in person, they're still learning through the screen. In retrospect, was that the best decision I could have made? It depends. It depends on what you're valuing. You know, there's some, there's some good things for kids that were in person that they needed the extra help. And like, you know, in-person instruction is definitely better. But on the, on the whole, when I look back at it and the craziness of everything, it was so much better to be able to focus my teachers on one thing because I was also relying them to be the conduits to connect with the kids to make sure that they were coming to something. And if I had overwhelmed the teachers by saying, you have to do two things, then both of them would have been really crappy and I wouldn't have had anyone to reach out to get the kids to come. So I did make a sacrifice in the quality of in-person instruction, but given the fact that by the time like we were back in person anyway, I only had 25% of my kids actually in person, I definitely made the choice for the majority of my kids who were at home. Made no sense for me investing in, in the quality of in-person instruction when three quarters of my kids were at home. I needed to go where they were and they were all at home. Maya, what do you say to this? Yeah, so we had the chance to catch up with some of the principals to hear how they are navigating the return to in-person instruction last fall. And overwhelmingly, I think that school leaders and teachers are exhausted. The past three years have been relentless, and they retain the deep care for their school community and have in many ways, as our paper shows, learned to adapt as schools. Um, But they're exhausted, which is reflected in the public discourse now about teachers expressing an intent to leave the teaching profession. And one principle we spoke to really highlights this point. And so I think a lot of folks are in this middle space of like coming off some incredibly challenging times professionally and personally to come back to the classroom and be their best for kids. Um, And so I have a lot of empathy and I understand why a lot of folks right now, like who would normally step up to be like, yeah, I want to stay after school. I want to run a club. I want to stay after school and work with, you know, a couple of kids. Like I want to do this, that, and everything else. Like, some of those folks are saying like, I need to think about my wellness right now. I need to think about like, you know, any number of things. I need to take care of my family for a little bit. Like, so the, the, the world has a lot going on right now. It always has, but I think especially right now, I think folks are, folks are really thinking about that. I've heard someone say the other day, like folks, a lot of the world right now is rationing care, um, which I think is an interesting way of trying to figure out like where you're putting your care right now and how to not exhaust yourself in in a context that could be exhausting. And now, Nicole, can you talk about this exhaustion principles are seeing in their teachers? I mean, this has been such a demanding process for everyone involved. It is no surprise that now principals are really dealing with what happens when they are kind of left on their own to deal with a widespread system level problem of teachers being expected to just handle so much more than they can. And um, now we're seeing the effects of that with widespread teacher shortages and, you know, widespread substitute shortages and school leaders just being pushed up against a wall. They still cannot catch a breath. They still cannot get out in front of the various problems 
that they know are coming down the pike. We talked to some educators who told us that in a typical school year, their school hosts dozens of student teachers and that they had had zero student teachers all of last year. So these kinds of problems are things that principals really need district level leadership to be focusing on and to be getting ahead and, you know, thinking ahead. That's a really excellent point. And it leads into the current challenges schools face. This last clip uh, that comes from a principal really characterizes the ongoing issues that principals are dealing with when it comes to their relationships with their districts. It feels like the city and the mayor and the chancellor are really of this idea that school has returned and everything is back to normal. And the reality is it is not. And there isn't any space for recognizing that. And so like there's these new things added to our plates, like maybe not so much now, but it used to be like, I'm calling the situation room to report a COVID outbreak. And I'm writing, and this is like hours around hours of paperwork that I have to manage. Or I had to create a new position or a new responsibility and figure out who to give that to of weekly testing. There's all of these these new COVID-related things that we are doing that is in addition to all of the other endless compliance things that we had to do. And none of it has to do with instruction, right? So like having to find subs, having to coordinate subs, having to get like coordinate testing, having to like make sure that we have enough PPE, having to do screener, all these things have been added. Nothing has been taken off our plate. But the truth is they need to lift up on the things that really don't matter. I get that they want to know what the learning loss is like in our schools. It is clear that there is learning loss. But then there needs to be a way or a timeline that it doesn't all have to happen today. Like, why do I need to know by October 29th how much English and math the kids don't know? What is happening that you need to know on October 29th? Why can't it happen on November 9th? I just need one more week. Why can't I get that? So a flexibility and the deadlines would be appreciative because then it would be sensitive to the fact that we just had the launch this year with shifting sands of COVID requirements. And that would have been appreciative, but that is a dead horse. Um, but the second thing that I would really love for support um, of the district is to get behind this idea of less is more. Like what is the single goal that we really need? What are the things that we're willing to put on the table to sacrifice? And what are the things that we're not? If you could tell me the... 10 or fewer things that are the most important that it will allow me to prioritize within my school those 10 things that I'm going to totally do. But right now, it does, it seems like everything shares equal importance, which means nothing is important, which makes it very difficult for a person like me to prioritize anything they ask me to do. Principals were really looking for the district to acknowledge where their schools were at. One other thing I would add is that I think our findings also really highlighted the importance of district networks for principals, particularly in a situation like a crisis, having role like networking and collaboration is super critical. Um, And we know from previous scholarship that professional isolation is a driver of principal turnover. So if we want to think long term about how do we retain principals in the field, I think we need to be thinking about positioning them in ways so they don't feel so isolated in moments of crisis, but even more generally. So another really important lesson that we learned through our conversations is about the cost of principals not having adequate autonomy to make decisions for their school communities. We talked to numerous principals who talked ad nauseum about how 
a very significant stressor for them, especially early on in the pandemic, was trying to decide what do a cost benefit analysis of when it made sense to to stretch the policy or break the rule or to challenge a policy. How much how much capital did it cost them to talk back to to their superintendent or to speak out against something that wasn't working for their school or community. And that was enormously stressful for principals. And we did talk to several principals who, what ultimately set them over the edge and made them feel like they could not count on their district or their city government to have their backs and to to trust them to do their jobs. And at least one principal that I can think of left at the end of the year, precisely because of that reason. But we talked to many principals who, whose experiences reflected findings from a national survey of principals conducted by the National Association of Secondary School Principals in the summer of 2020 that found that principals across the board were not only struggling um, during the pandemic, but that 45% of principals reported that the pandemic conditions were prompting them to leave the job sooner than they had previously planned. So principals were saying, I hadn't really been thinking of leaving soon, but now I am thinking about leaving soon. And that was really borne out in our research. We heard from from principal after principal who just talked about the anxiety and the uh, exhaustion of trying to navigate policies that they didn't have flexibility over. And finally, I, I really just want to thank you again and turn it back over to you all one more time. Uh, what are the biggest takeaways you have from this study? Yeah, I think our big takeaway from this study is that districts need to recognize the ways that principals can and do act as middle managers. They're on the front lines and their top priority is being responsive to their school communities. So if and when district guidance is not flexible or supportive enough to enable them to be responsive to their communities, we know that they often have the agency to challenge or subvert that guidance. It is a huge undertaking to lead organizational change efforts in schools, and the COVID-19 pandemic only added further stress to that. If districts are able to couple guidance with supports and craft policies that are actually responsive to what's going on at school sites, I think that'd be a critical support to principals' abilities to take care of their school communities and do their jobs well. Throughout the pandemic, as we interviewed principals and as I've just you know, been an observer in this world and, and as as an education leader myself, you can't just tell everybody everything is going to be okay when it's not. But I was really inspired throughout all of these interviews with, with principals, how much these school leaders mustered everything that they could to demonstrate hope for the sake of their communities. Constantly asking, what can we actually do? What's within our locus of control? What can we act upon? How can we make this horrible time just a little bit better? How can we come together as a community to get through this together? And I think that within that, we also talked to principal after principal who just described how collegial they were, how much they could count on other principals, how much they could count on their own school communities. We did not hear a single story about people competing or hoarding resources or hoarding information. We really heard a lot of stories of principals 
and their school communities rallying together to to make things work as best as possible. And we heard some really deeply sad stories about lost students or sick parents or already struggling communities losing the little economic resources that they had to begin with. But but we also heard a lot of stories of resilience. And that was really inspirational. Maya Calls, a PhD student in education policy at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. Nicole Simon was a longtime New York City public educator in both the New York City DOE and at CUNY. She's now an assistant dean and lecturer at Harvard College. Their paper with Megan Comstock, Leading from the Middle, How Principals Rely on District Guidance and Organizational Conditions in Times of Crisis, is available online and linked below. Make sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts. For the Consortium for Policy Research and Education's Research Minutes podcast, I'm Luke Segoe.